We are continuing our sermon series in the Song of Songs, chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 666. Indeed it is. It's going to be a good one today. Find Isaiah, move one book. Before that, you'll find the Song of Songs. Someone said, I'm not sure who, someone said the timing's everything. Uh, I love comedians, I love a good joke, and if you know anything about comedians, the best comedians, they have impeccable timing. Uh, A good friend of mine, they were having their first uh, child, I think my friend is really, really funny, they had their first child, and it was a long labor, a really long labor, a hard labor. Labor. It was painful, and about 30 seconds after the baby was born, the mom was holding the baby. He looked his wife straight in the face and said, that was great, we should do this again. <laughs> I think it was impeccable timing. It's hilarious, right? Timing's everything, right? If you're not laughing, you think that was poor timing. <laughs> Timing's everything. I, I, I know nothing about the military for the most part, but my guess is when it comes to battles, timing is everything. I mean, we, we could go down the list with job after job, teaching. If you're in finance, timing is everything. Much of life is about timing, isn't it? Uh, I was dating my wife for about six months. I was in love with her. She liked me. That was kind of the, the way things were going. And so about six months in, I bought a ring, a diamond ring so that I could propose to her. But I knew that if I gave it to her and proposed, she would freak out and say no. So I hid it for six months because I knew timing is everything. Well, the Bible talks about this, right? The book of Ecclesiastes, there's a a text in chapter five that says there's a timing for everything under the sun, A a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to laugh, a time to cry, a time to embrace, or a time of love, or a time to refrain from embracing, or refrain from loving. There's a time for everything, including romantic love. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, that timing is everything, especially in romantic relationships. So I always give you the big idea. The big idea behind me is simply this. There is a time to wait on romantic love and a time to act on it. We're going to kind of go through chapter two in those two parts. A time to act, a time to wait, and a time to act. So turn with me to Song of Songs, chapter two. Yes, our church is going through this book. Be praying as we do. Starting in verse 1, we'll read to the end of chapter 2. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young women. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banquet house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. 
I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over mountains, bounding over hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the window, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time uh, of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree is ripe, ripe, is ripen its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rocks, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweeter and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breeze and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. The Song of Songs is poetry. It is that greatest of love songs. And this song is set in the context between a man and a woman who are smitten with each other. And if you're going to need to know that poetry functions differently than a story or a narrative. So there is no, in one sense, plot arc to this story. These are, this is poetry, and, and these scenes are like stitched together, and they're driven thematically in character. So there's not like a rising action, a climax, and then a, a resolution. That's not how this works its way out. These are love poems kind of stitched together based on these two lovers and these, these, these poetic images talking about their love are highly evocative. So how poetry works is we're meant to feel something before we think something. So we're meant to, to feel the language, kind of just dive into the poetry, but we can't be literalistic with it. So if we say things like, God is a rock, we wouldn't say that God is literally a rock. We know that rock is standing. It's, it's it, it, sort of a, a metaphor for aspects or a description of who God is like. And that's what we see here. Their kind of budding love is described in very, very evocative language. We're meant to feel it before we interpret it. And so in verse 1, we pick up, right, where chapter uh, chapter 1 left off. So in chapter 1, you had the, the man and the woman, they're kind of going back and forth, showering each other with affirmation, just showering each other with love, just words of encouragement, words of love. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter Two, verse one. And she describes herself as a rose of Sharon or a lily of the valley. Now, a, a rose of Sharon and a lily, they're beautiful flowers, are they not? They're great. They're beautiful. There's nothing wrong with a, a lily. There's nothing wrong with a rose of Sharon. The, the point of this is where this flower is set in a valley. Basically, what she's saying is she is a beautiful lily among other beautiful lilies. She's common. Her beauty is common. She is pretty, but there's a lot of pretty flowers. And so she is set in a valley of other pretty flowers. She's not calling herself ugly. That's not the, the, the imagery here. She's just calling herself normal, average, right? We, we can all relate to this. She's just saying, I'm average, as I'm guessing all of us would say. We're just average. 
But notice verse 2, the, the man speaks, and he, there's something, there's something wonderfully naive about love, is there not? It's not like objective. Like, obviously she probably is average, and yet he doesn't see her as average, does he? Verse 2, as a lily among brambles or as a lily among thorns, so is my love among young women. So he's basically saying, rubbish. No, that's wrong. You think you're average? You think you're just a lily among the valley? No, you're a lily among thorns. And we'd all say a lily is more beautiful than thorns. So he's basically saying that among all the women out there, she's a 10 and all the other women are twos. <laughs> it's, it's absurd, but that's what love does, right? So, so if you could put it in kind of contemporary terms, here, here we have this, this man on The Bachelor, and he only gives out one rose, and he's always going to give it to this woman. She's the only woman getting the rose. She's the most beautiful thing he's ever set his eyes on. Well, once again, she then speaks, right? And really, she's going to speak through the rest of this chapter. And he affirms her. He says, you're beautiful. And she responds in verse 3. And now, she doesn't say that you're a flower. She calls him, verse 3, look, a tree, an apple tree. And really, the contrast works similarly. So you just have to slow down. This is, again, poetry. And in verse 3, she says, okay, well, there's a lot of trees in the forest. And a lot of trees in the forest are all the men in the world, all the men in her, her town. But he's not just an average tree. He's just not a pine tree. He's an apple tree. He's an apple tree. He's an apple tree that's filled with leaves so she can find um, safety, right, from the sun, right? There's language there. I, I delighted to sit in the shadow. And then he's producing fruit, apples. So there's nothing special about him now. She's basically just mirroring what he's doing back to her and saying, well, you are beautiful, you are glorious, you are heads and tails above all other men. You provide. I want to run away with you. When I'm with you, I feel safe. When I'm with you, I feel secure. When I'm with you, I don't think of anyone else. You are that special. You are like an apple tree in a forest of just average trees. It's beautiful, isn't it? And then she goes on verse 4. And she says, she sort of remembers this time she went on a dinner date with this guy. Verse 4, when she went to the banquet house, which literally is just house of wine. So, so she's remembering the time she went wine tasting with this guy and just got swept away in love. She went on a dinner date. She went to the Olive Garden or whatever. You could, you could interpret it in any way. She goes to this dinner date and she's just remembering this date. But more than just remembering the date, she remembers the time Verse 4, that his banner over me was love. Uh, when I was in high school, if you made a varsity sport, you got a letterman jacket. Okay, this might date me. But you got a letterman jacket, and theoretically, this never happened to me. That's a different story. But theoretically, when you had a letterman jacket, you could give it to a girl. Okay? Um, and what that meant is that girl was with you. Like, and she would wear your letterman jacket with your name on it as to symbolize, like, oh, like, you're dating you're together. Uh, it, it was a way of expressing sort of like the, the, the high school type of love that was blossoming in at least my high school. I'm sure there's a... Are Letterman things a thing anymore? They still are? Okay. I don't even know if they're a thing anymore. But you get the point. That's what's going on here. Just they're, th- these high school kids 
Or these college kids, they, they go to dinner, and he has a letterman jacket, he's the star athlete, and he takes off his letterman jacket, his banner of love, and he gives it to her. Or, or, or he's, he's at a karaoke restaurant, and he just jumps up on the stage, he grabs the mic, and he sings Ed Sheeran's Perfect for everyone to see, right? He's going public with his love. And it's romantic. It's glorious. And you see what this romance does, starting in verse 5. She says, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I'm sick with love. Okay, what does that mean? Well, basically, this is what she's saying. In light of his kind of romantic gesture, going public with his love, she's basically saying, I'm sick with love, and I need a protein bar, right? Or I need to go to Jamba Juice, I, I need some sugar, because I'm weak in, I've got butterflies, and I'm, you know, weak in the head. Like, that, that's what romance can do. She's just enraptured in love. She's got more than a crush, right? And then, verse 6, as kind of the, the, the scene is building, it builds to this moment where he then makes his move. The man makes his move, and he puts his left arm around her, his, her, uh, her head, and she, he kind of like pulls her to him. And you think like, okay, he's going to give her a kiss. Here it is, this big scene. Hollywood make it this way. And then, scene cut. And we get verse 7. And you're like, what? Like, right as he makes his move, Right as it's about to turn from PG to PG-13, the scene cuts, because that's Bible, right? And then starting in verse 7, we have the woman breaking the third wall. Now, if you know anything about movies, you know what this is. So uh, actors and actresses, they'll be in a scene, and they pretend like there is no camera, right? Because they're talking to each other. But breaking the third wall is when an actor and actress turns to the camera and speaks to the camera. And I think that's what's going on right here. So they're in this kind of passionate moment, and right as it starts to get kind of hot and heavy, she goes, time out, scene, and she turns from her love, this scene, and she turns and looks at the audience, she looks at the camera, or in this case, she looks at her friends, these daughters of Jerusalem. So, Song of Songs is, is, is wonderful, and you could put it side by side with the book of Proverbs. So the book of Proverbs is, just narratively, it's a father speaking to sons, to his son. That's how it's starting together. It's always this father speaking to his son, which doesn't mean that it's not for girls. It's just saying that's how it's built. And the Song of Songs is about a woman speaking to other women. And so she calls time out as things sort of start kind of moving along, moving along, and she calls time out, and then she begins to address her friends. And she says, verse 7, I adjure you, or I command you, or I beg of you. The language here is an oath. She's asking her friends, these her, her girlfriends who are younger than her, she's asking them to take an oath by the gazelles or the does of the field, which is weird, but basically she's saying, I want you to take an oath by all that is in the world, by the creation in the world. I want you to take an oath. And what's the oath? Do not stir up. Do not awaken love until it pleases, or we could put it this way, do not awaken love until the right time. She knows that we all long for for intimacy. We all long for relationships. We all long for love. We saw that in chapter one. And so she knows as, as her friends are just kind of being swept away in this love, she knows that love can sometimes make you do irrational things, Love can sometimes make you do untimely things. 
And so she wants to remind her friends that, as it relates to romantic love, timing is everything. And so she asks for them to take an oath, to make, to, to make a promise that they will not awaken love until love is ready, until the timing is right. And it's a warning for all of us. It's a warning that as it relates to romantic love, there is a right time and a right context for it to be awakened. And we get, we kind of get a glimpse of this too, because this is not just puppy love. This is not like a one night stand. This man and this woman, they're committing to each other. And we see this, right? He's going public with his love. So, so there's a social aspect to this love. This is not merely physical, but socially he is committing to her and socially she's committing to him. She's not, he's not just saying like, well, let's have a one night stand. You can have my body, but, but I'm not going to give you my bank account or my dream or I'm not going to commit to you socially. No, he's saying all of me I'm giving to you. And so she, this woman kind of pauses on their love story and says, I need to remind her friends and remind all of us that as it relates to romantic love, that we can get so swept up that we can realize that actually romantic love is set in a larger context where a man and a woman commit to each other and commit socially, financially, psychologically, and spiritually, and physically to one another. It's that sort of commitment. If you've been to a Christian wedding recently, when you exchange rings, often what uh, the sort of traditional way you do this is, is you say basically... Um, I give you this ring as a sign of, of my covenant. And then the bride or the groom repeats after, after the, the official, the efficient, and says, with all that I am and, and all that I have, I give to thee. Basically, whatever I have, I give to you and I'm holding nothing back. That's true marriage. That's true romantic context. That's the context for, for awakening romantic love. It is the context where you're saying, I'm not holding anything back from you. And so just as this sort of romance goes from PG to PG-13, she calls a timeout to remind all of us that timing is everything. Timing's everything. The woman sort of knows that left to all of ourselves, we might be a fool who rushes into love, and she loves her friends enough to have this difficult conversation. Now, again, I I said this last week, but this is wisdom literature. And so this is meant to make all of us wise. And so you go, okay, so when do I know when it's the right time? Great question. I have no idea. (laughs) So that's, um, but I do know this. I do know this, that if you're not willing to commit to the other person psychologically, socially, financially, physically, spiritually, and hit your entire wagon to them, then you're not ready to awaken or get married. My, my, uh, I have a good friend of mine, and he would sit his kids down, and he'd basically sort of rehearse uh, sort of a catechistic view of, of marriage, and he'd, from little age, be like, okay, so uh, um, who can I marry? And he'd, they'd be like, a Christian. He's like, that's the right answer. And he's like, okay, and uh, and who should I not marry? And they'd say, an idiot. That was what he would say. So he goes, those are the two things. You need to marry a Christian of the opposite sex, and then second day, don't marry an idiot. That was his way of saying, don't, like you're, you're hitching yourself to this person. So be wise. Be 
slow. Don't rush into this. Be thoughtful. Take an oath for all that is good in this world to not awaken love. Timing's everything. But I also think, by way of application, something that we learn. I think it's just wonderful that this woman, in the midst of her love relationship, her romantic relationship, she calls a timeout and has a conversation about physical intimacy with her friends. I think the Christian church has been really bad about this. So we say, we don't want the public school to have a conversation about physical intimacy. We we don't want them to dictate the conversation. But it's an awkward conversation, and so we don't want to have it in our homes as well. But I think we need to be reminded that we, as Christians, should not blush when physical intimacy is, we are physical creatures. And we need to, as parents, as aunts and uncles, as grandparents, we need to be having those conversations, not once, so you can just check off the box, but consistently, and catechizing our kids to think in biblical categories and having a safe place so that when our children and our young adults have questions about physical intimacy, they can come to us and we can continue to have those conversations and set that conversation within the broader context of a biblical worldview. If you don't know how to do that, um, like come talk to the elders. We, we have lots of books, resources, but uh, I just encourage you to do that. Have that awkward conversation. And it is awkward. It is. When my wife and I got married, uh, one of the things we decided to do in our reception is we wanted to be the last to leave our reception. It was like, this is an epic party. It's a party for us. So we're going to be the last to leave. And so we didn't really think that one through because it's about midnight and everyone had gone and there was no one to take us to the hotel. And this is before Uber, so we're like, okay, how are we going to get there? And so there was no one to take us, but one person stepped up to the plate and said, I'll take you to the hotel, and it was my father-in-law. <laughs> True story. So he's driving us to the hotel, and about six blocks, and it's unbearably uncomfortable, and about a few blocks away from the hotel, he pauses and says, well, you're married. Uh, it's about time I give you some advice about sex. <laughs> and he went, and about, I don't know, a five-minute talk, and he started talking about physical intimacy. Now, it was a little bit creepy, and it was weird, and I was really uncomfortable, but here's the point in all this. And I'm not just sharing this because it's funny, and I'm not just so I can just share my pain. This is not like group therapy. I'm sharing this because I think there's something lovely about what he just did, sort of, Right? He was saying, it wasn't time for me to have this conversation a year ago. He was saying, you're married. Now is the time. Now is the time for me to have this conversation. And he did so, and it was a thoughtful gesture. (laughs) I'm just not recommending it. But timing's everything. He thought the timing was then. Good for him. And we had that conversation, and we listened. (laughs) And then we left and pretended that that never happened. But for all of us, we need to remember that timing, timing is everything. And as it relates to our kids, have that conversation. And as it relates to if you're wondering and you're, you're single or you're trying to think through what does this look like, timing's everything. And like we learned last week, invite people into it. Invite people into your relationship. Have them speak into it. And if they're all giving you like, yeah, I really think this is the right thing. 
as you kind of wait and they affirm you, that's a really good sign. So the first kind of seven verses are all about waiting. Waiting on love until the right timing, the proper context, which is a commitment, the commitment of marriage. But then starting in verse 8, we have a shift. And it's no longer waiting. That's not the emphasis. Now the emphasis is on awakening, awakening romantic love, verse 8 to 17. So if you go there to verse 8, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping. So, so instantly we're like, okay, like they were together, they were embracing, they were hugging, the scene cuts, and now all of a sudden he's gone. And you're like, what just happened? This is poetry, remember. It's like whimsical, it's dreamlike, scenes like, like start and end in different places. And so now we're at a new scene and he's gone. He's, he's been off working, he, he's been in some vineyard and he's out doing chores or whatever. We don't even know the context, we just know there's distance between her and him. And he comes leaping over mountains, right? This is like sound of of music, right? He's climbing every mountain, fording every stream. He is making every opportunity to sort of, uh, to take whatever distance was there and to make there be no distance. So he's he's running towards her, starting in verse 8. He's leaping over mountains. He's bounding over hills. And then you'd think, like, if this was like a Hollywood movie, you'd think that as he's, like, charging, and there's just going to be this great connection that he was just going to, like, pick her up and, like, twirl her around. You'd think that that was going to happen, but he doesn't, does he? He pauses. She's in the house looking out the window, and he's, yes, this couple has a picket fence, right? He stands outside of the fence and just looks. And then he speaks a little bit like Romeo and Juliet, right? Verse 10. And he says, come away with me. We see that repeated in verse 10, and then we see it again in verse, verse uh, 13. Verse 14. So he's, he's pursuing her, and he's calling her to go on a great adventure. And then he uses all this language, this, this metaphorical language about rain and flowers and turtle doves and fig trees and vines. And you're like, what in the world is going on here? It's all this agricultural, all this nature and Maybe you're like me and you don't even like mosquitoes and you're like, I, can't, I have no idea what this, this language is talking about. Well, just I, it's, it's really clear. Basically, she's saying, like, we've all, all of us have been hibernating for six months, right? Spring is here. I hear it's coming, okay? So don't quote me on this. Don't stone me if I'm wrong. Like, but I hear spring is coming. The nice weather is coming, right? The rain is gone. It's time to go out. That's basically what, what she's saying. Like, the, the birds are chirping. The cherry blossoms have have arrived. Spring is singing. The time is right and ripe for love. Or as verse 12 says, the time of singing has come. So here's this guy pursuing this woman and saying the time is ripe, the time is ready for romantic love. It's a calling. So whatever distance, whatever the reason for the dif- di- distance he is saying the time's right. The time wasn't right for the daughters of Jerusalem, but the time is right for their love. But she's not quite sure. She's not exactly sure that the time is right. And we know that because look down at verse 15. As he's wooing her with words, calling her to some great adventure, some wonderful dinner date, verse 15, 
catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. So the, the vineyard, we learned this last week, and we're going to see this all the way through. The vineyard stands for her and their budding romantic relationship. But there's foxes, and the foxes are spoiling their relationship. So just think about this. Foxes are sly. Foxes eat, I'm guessing, they, they, they eat plants. They, they trample plants. They're a nuisance if you're a farmer. And so what, whatever this fox is standing for, basically it's anything that stands in the way of greater intimacy with your spouse. That's what a fox is. And she's basically saying there are foxes in our relationship. There are things that are getting in the way of our intimacy, whether it's emotional or physical or spiritual. There are foxes in the vineyard of their relationship. Now, we don't exactly know what they are, but we do know that you just think of your relationships, whether it's friendships or whether it's romantic relationships. We know this, that there are foxes and they come in all shapes and sizes, do they not? And my guess is, sometimes we might not even know what those foxes are. Sometimes we don't even know what those things are that are becoming barriers to greater intimacy with our friends or with our spouses. And I guess if you're married, or even within the context of friendship, could you articulate what foxes exist in your guys' relationship that are actually hindering deeper intimacy with your spouse in this season? Could, could, do you know what those foxes are? Could you articulate them? Or maybe, if not, if, would you be willing to ask your spouse or a friend, are, are there things that I'm doing or are there things that I'm not doing that are getting in the way of greater closeness and intimacy in this season? Because that's what's going on here. We, we all know that marriage east of Eden is difficult. A friendship in this world, in this broken world, is hard. It's hard. And there are things that get in the way of relationships, to get in the way of our marriages. So whether a fox is lust or bitterness or technology or work, whatever the fox is that's roaming in your relationships, are you aware of them? And if so, the calling here is to prayerfully and actively, by God's grace, to protect your relationship from them and to actively push them out of your relationship. Now, what does this look like practically? I have no idea. Because <laughs> I have no idea. Because my marriage or my friendships are different than your marriages and your friendships. So they're all different. But let me just give you a few applications that are coming right out of the text. One of the things that we see here is that the guy and the woman equally pursue each other. Do they not? That they're pursuing each other with words. They're pursuing each other with acts. He's leaping over mountains to pursue greater intimacy with her. So what we do know is that one of the things, one of the commands, one of the exhortations for all of us is within friendships and within marriages we're called to sacrificial pursuit of one another. To pursue loving one another in ways that maybe we wouldn't love, or maybe it wouldn't be our first way of loving, but we know that our spouse or our friend would really, really appreciate. And so we, one of the things we see by way of just application is, here, both of them equally 
are sacrificially pursuing each other, showering each other with words of affirmation, encouraging each other, building each other up with words. You know, she's insecure maybe about how she looks, and he's affirming her with words and actions. He's romancing her, taking her out on a date, all those sorts of things, whatever that is. They're both pursuing each other. So at bare minimum, what we do know is that how we can pursue greater intimacy in the midst of our foxes is we need to, one, know what they are, but two, also continue to pursue sacrificial service. Things spoil relationships all the time. I mean, sadly, we've seen all this. My guess is all of us didn't come unscathed in the last five years. We had hard conversations with parents and loved ones and families. Uh, Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner got more awkward because of the last five years, did they not? Relationships are difficult. And there are foxes. There are things that get in the way of deeper intimacies with various people in our lives. But I just want to point out that this happens with our relationship to God, too. There are foxes in our lives that actually impede deeper intimacy and greater fidelity to Christ. And in many ways, I don't know what they are in your life. I barely know what they are in my life as well. But there are foxes in the vineyard of our relationship with God that spoil and taint our relationship with God. And so what do we do in that context? Well, I think Song of Songs chapter 2 gives us the perfect antidote. In chapter 2, the gospel is all over the place. It's just in seed form, but it's, it's germinating, it's growing. So, 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 so here you have a, a reminder that this man is providing, he's going public with his love, he's sustaining her, and by way of analogy, this is what God does for us. You see, God always, it's not as if we clean ourselves up, it's not as if we just all of a sudden get all the foxes out of our hen house, and then when we do that, then we can be right with God. That's not what the gospel says. The Christian story isn't clean yourself up, get rid of the foxes, and then go to God. The gospel always is first and foremost God initiating with us. And he does. Ultimately, God initiates with us by sending his son, who then goes public with his love for us when he dies on the cross. He provides for us in that sacrifice. And what does he do? He protects us from our own sin. He protects us from the wrath of God that we ought to, that that ought to reside on us because of our sin. He goes public in the resurrection that says, these are my sons and daughters. This is my new family. He goes public with his love. And then he has a banquet right? He invites us to a banquet. This is what we're going to do in a moment when we have communion. Christ, through the gospel, invites us to a banquet, and we together, who have the name of Christ, who have gone public with our profession of faith, get to participate in a meal. And this meal, it's a fine meal. Jews, crackers, but it's always pointing to this greater meal, is it not? This meal that Christ has prepared for us in advance to sit with him And then we see this amazing intimacy that as we then, empowered by the Spirit and God's grace, as we live for Jesus and slowly kick out the rival, the rival gods in our lives, the rival foxes, to use that same imagery, as God's word continually kind of points out those things in our hearts that are impeding our relationship with God, 
we have deeper and deeper intimacy with Christ, do we not? The Song of Songs has the gospel just germinating, blossoming all over. The poem ends with this, the, the, the love of this man and this woman just blossoming. Look there, verse 16. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Right? This, we're going to see this language over and over and over again. All of me and all of you, right? So this, this is commitment language. You are mine and I am yours. And then verse 17, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, basically from, from, from the dawn until the dusk, from morning to night, turn my beloved like a gazelle or a, or a young stag on cleft mountains. So, so, so notice, whatever distance there was, there no longer is distance. The man was gazing, now he's grazing. I stole that, but that's good, huh? That's the language. There is intimacy. There is deeper intimacy. And so let me just end, because it ends with this glorious height. And then the scene is going to close, and we're going to have a new scene. Because any time it kind of starts ratcheting it up, scene ends. And that's how it ends, with this wonderful, exalted intimacy between a man and a woman, this closeness that comes as they fought for their relationship, as each other pursued one another, sacrificially. And how does this all happen? It happens because timing's everything. The timing wasn't right for some in verse 7, but the timing was right for them. So, my question for you this morning, in conclusion, timing is everything. I don't know where you're at in in the midst of that, but know this, that as you prayerfully think through the timing of romantic love, wherever you are on that, on that love story, know this, that though it might not be time to awaken romantic love in your life, but know this, it is always appropriate to awaken your love for Jesus Christ. That That is a love story that you can have in abundance. And you don't have to wait. We're about to celebrate a meal that's meant to physically awaken and remind us of the closeness we can have with God through Christ. So let's pray. God, uh, I thank you for... I thank you for the love that we can have, the love that you offer to us, the love that you invite us into, the the love that you died for. Jesus, we just pray, Lord, that as we continue to think through how we can um, love one another better, carry each other's burdens, sorrows, and joys, Lord, we pray that, that we would be more enamored with your son, Jesus Christ, and enter into that beautiful story that starts now, but will have no end. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.